Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Gary Wilder, the author of Freedom Time, Negritude, Decolonization, and the Future of the World. And the book was published by Duke University Press in 2015. Hi there, Gary. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. And thank you also, before we start, for the Lauren Hill uh, reference. I had no <laughs> idea that she had a song titled Freedom Time, and it's not, it's not unrelated in some ways. So. I should put up the, the YouTube link with the, with the interview uh, blog post. Could you get us started, Gary, by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in working on France? Sure. Um, I come to France by way of West Africa, actually. I, I lived in uh, Togo, West Africa from 1986 to 1989 after college as a Peace Corps volunteer working on a rural agricultural development project. And uh, like many people, by the end of that experience, working with USAID, being implicated in a large kind of imperial project, I decided I did not want to stay in the world of development, but did want to figure out the mess of post-colonial Africa and kind of intercontinental relations of inequality. And I went to graduate school, actually in anthropology, and I come to history through anthropology. I was in anthropology for two years. I went to University of Chicago to study historical anthropology, which was a place where uh, the study of colonialism was unfolding in a really exciting way. At that time, I started in 1990. And... Although some of the most important and exciting historical anthropologists were at Chicago, it was still difficult to do a historical project that was not based on ethnography. So my third, after I was ABD in anthropology, I applied to the history department at University of Chicago, got accepted, worked it out so I could write one dissertation, but I was in two departments. So I started over in history and did another, all the coursework in history and another set of qualifying exams. And so I come to, wow. and, and I, I became a modern Europeanist, but I was really uh, understood myself to be doing colonial studies. So it was really at that intersection of his, historical anthropology, colonial studies, and critical theory, critical social theory, and French history, French empire, West Africa became uh, the place where so many of my intellectual and political interests kind of converged. So I don't come to it from, uh, you know, beginning at, with, an, with, with, with an interest in France as France. Hmm, that's really interesting. In the preface to Freedom Time, Gary, you outline your path to this work as one that had both sort of intellectual and personal dimensions. And I found these first pages of the book really quite moving. So what, what can you tell us about your arrival at these questions and issues and, and maybe even about the writing process? Sure. Um, well, in many ways, this book uh, extends the the thematic concerns uh, that were present in my earlier book called The French Imperial Nation State mm-hmm. uh, that was published in 2005. And that was about French West Africa and a form of colonial domination that developed in the interwar period. And I wrote about the political logic or the political rationality that I saw underlying and organizing uh, a unique form of administrative power in the interwar period. That was the first half of the book. And the second half of the book was about the cosmopolitan milieu of black Paris in the 1930s and uh, the genesis of the negritude movement and uh, form of knowledge out of that. So at the center of that book were also Aimé Césaire and Leopold Senghor. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was done with those thinkers, at least in terms of uh, research projects. I didn't think I would ever be done with people like that because uh, they're good to think with. And I was setting out to just write one essay. That book ended in 1939. And uh, I was really interested. I knew that uh, the both Senghor and Césaire were 
political actors during the period of decolonization and had a lot to say about decolonization that was not self-evident. And I just wanted to write one essay for one conference about one of their thoughts on decolonization. (laughs) And as I started writing about it, as I explained in the preface, uh, it just grew and grew and grew. And and it's not surprising, given my argument that we need to think of these guys as global thinkers and theorists of colonial modernity or the 20th century, it shouldn't have been surprising to me that I was suddenly thinking with them about another whole set of issues at a later period, the 1945 to 1960 period, which this book is about, uh, and a whole different set of issues around if the first book was about a form of domination, this book really is about the problem of freedom, how to organize uh, self-management and self-determination mm-hmm. after uh, after the end of empire. But as I was, I wrote this book, uh, I, I described this in the preface, I wrote this book uh, at, at, at a moment, or I started drafting this essay I'm talking about at a moment uh, when I personally was thinking a great deal about time and temporality and legacies and generations. My mother mm-hmm. was sick, my wife was pregnant, uh, both of those things were happening at the same time. And I thought uh, my own reading was refracted in a deeply personal way around these issues of time and possibility and foreclosed possibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thus my interest in time in a very deep way. But as I say in the preface, I kind of opened my eyes and woke up and realized or looked around and realized that all across uh, the academy, there were a range of scholars in uh, many different fields who are interested in the problem of time and the issue of politics in relation to time and questions about u- utopia and temporality and futurity and futures past seemed to be everywhere. So mm-hmm. uh, that became central to the book and part of the title of the book. Could we back up for a second, Gary, and just um, I want to ask you about, you know, both of these books that you've written um, have negritude not just in the title, but sort of at the core of the projects um, that they that they contain. Um, can you just give us a brief overview of the term, um, how you're working with it in your research more broadly? Sure. Um, the term negritude really refers to a cultural project, a form of knowledge, a kind of conversation among friends that developed among French-speaking African and Antillean students in Paris in the 1930s, mm-hmm. famously at the center of this and, you know, founding this uh, conversation because it really is a conversation, was never really a movement or an organization. There were no manifestos. There were no members. Uh, it only really retrospectively became something like a movement, but it's really a conversation among friends. So at the center of this uh, were uh, students in Paris from uh, West Africa, from Martinique, from Guadeloupe, from Guyane, and the most uh, famous figures were Leopold Senghor from Senegal, uh, Leon Gontron Damas from Guyane, and Aimé uh, Césaire from Martinique. And I got interested in thinking about negritude at a time when, in the 1990s, when it was absolutely not a fashionable topic. Uh, negritude is typically meant to refer to these young students' rejection of political assimilation and their interest in reclaiming African and Black identity, culture, history, values, ways of being, ways of thinking as uh, irreducible, valuable in and of themselves, distinct from uh, European or Western ways of uh, thinking and knowing and uh relating to the world. They were deeply influenced by uh, the new Negro movement and the Harlem Renaissance at just a slightly earlier period in the U.S. So this means that for a long time, negritude was understood by scholars to be an African or a black identity movement, a nativism primarily concerned with expressing black subjectivity. And in the 1990s, when uh, critiques of essentialism were especially powerful. Mm-hmm. It seemed to most of my peers, my teachers, scholars, uh, that everything that needs to be needed to be known or said about negritude was known and said, and that mm-hmm. these guys were romantic essentialists who didn't understand uh, that race was socially constructed and that uh, differences uh, inhere within identities. So to many, 
these guys seem to be the worst of both worlds. They were on the one hand, mm-hmm. racial essentialists, and on the other hand, because they were uh, educated students who developed their ideas as expatriate students in Paris, they also seemed to be unreconstructed Francophiles in some sense. So a lot of people thought this was a cringeworthy topic. And mm-hmm. here I am, 20 <laughs> years later and two books into it, still thinking that and in many ways, I started there because it was an uncomfortable place. And I thought, uh, there's no way that all that we know and needs to be said about this could possibly be said. These were situated actors grappling with all the problems we continue to be interested in. And the way in which they dealt with them has to be illuminating in some way. So that's why I've been focused on them. Well, and I think your pursuit of some of these uncomfortable questions and some of the other ones that, that get explored in this book is part of what makes the project so so exciting. Early on in the project, uh, Gary, you, you characterize the book as an attempt to think through the relationship between freedom and time. And you've already mentioned these two big notions that you're working with here. So, so yeah, why is the book called Freedom Time? <laughs> well, I say at the beginning that it's, it's you know, there's the dual sense of freedom time in the sense that decolonization was a time for freedom. But it also struck me that as these colonized peoples in the French empire, especially Africans and Antillians, contemplated the end of empire and thought about the prospect and promise of colonial emancipation, uh, they grappled with a whole, the the answer to what form colonial emancipation was not self-evident to them. And as they wrestled with it, uh, they seemed to me to raise both implicitly and explicitly a whole set of questions about politics and time, about the post-war opening or period, let's say between 1945 uh, and 1947, when the Cold War began as a a brief opening when a different kind of world order and a different kind of French Republic might have been possible. They also raised questions about time uh, in the sense that they were really focused on the relationship between the given set of possibilities, a given set of historical and political conditions and what other future possibilities may already inhere within them. And they also were remarkably interested in the question of time insofar as uh, the whole book is about the, my attempt to take seriously their non-self-evident interest in imagining a non-national form of decolonization, mm-hmm. in thinking about self-determination with state sovereignty. And I discovered that their attempts to do so in many ways were mediated by past attempts in the 1790s and the 1840s to do something very similar. So I was very interested in the ways in which they their experience of their world historical moment was in many ways mediated and refracted by these unrealized past possibilities that in some senses they were awakening. And I was very struck by how they consistently referred to their predecessors as contemporaries. Mm -hmm. So part of the conceit of the book was just as they thought and lived, didn't just think, but really lived the period of decolonization through uh, earlier historical epochs uh, there may be a way in which our present post-Cold War moment may uh, be li- reconnected, rearticulated with the post-war moment in ways. And here I was very inspired by Walter Benjamin's ideas of historical constellations mm-hmm. and his idea that every now is a new now of recognizability and that at every historical moment, other periods of the past become legible in new ways, or perhaps even for the first time. And uh, part of the task, uh, the political and the historical task is to uh, read those other moments at those moments of legibility. So I am suggesting that our moment now may be one where we can see differently or anew the post-war period that these guys were wrestling with. Given some of the complexities that you're dealing with in terms of temporality, I feel a bit pedestrian asking you about periodization. But, you know, the book begins with this moment of post-war opening, uh, and it ends uh, in 1960. And, I, you know, you've worked on the interwar years. Um, and, and of course, it, it ends formally. I mean, when you're looking at their work, you, you end uh, in a certain way in 1960. But of course, the book continues up to, to consideration of the present. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about those those dates and and how you think of them as markers? Well, in part, uh, 
you know, I treat 1945 to 1960 as the period of decolonization. I'm especially interested in that period in these intellectuals' lives, in Césaire's and Senghor's uh, careers and lives. Mm -hmm. Scholars tend to focus on either their earlier uh, poetic phase and production when they were students in the 1930s or their later lives as uh, formal political leaders, politicians, leaders of political parties in the post-1960 moment. And it has it struck me that the period 45 to 60 was one of real political and intellectual creativity in their lives when they, as I uh, discuss in the book, tried to envision a, a, a political formation, a type of polity that didn't yet exist, uh, that uh, they had no precedent for, which uh, I'm sure we'll talk about in a few minutes, but that that's the reason why that period is interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Their work was incredibly creative. It, in some ways it's understudied and underappreciated. And this is the moment when a different uh, way of organizing global politics, I argue was possible. And my point isn't that their vision of what uh, a post colonial federal republic should be or their vision of the global order was the correct one or would have been successful, but that uh, we have missed an opportunity by dismissing the their thinking during this period for 50 or 60 years simply because they were not anti-colonial nationalists. So the, my, my starting point is because they were not anti-colonial nationalists, scholars and critics have consistently regarded them as imperial apologists who were interested in finding a way to accommodate themselves to empire rather than pursuing decolonization. And my argument is that they were, uh, they were pursuing an alternative form of decolonization. But what I also try to do in terms of periods is to say the only way to truly understand this period, 45 to 60, is to understand the way in which other historical epochs, namely the 1790s and the 1840s, major moments in the history of colonial emancipation, mm -hmm. were nested in 1945 to 1960. At least for these historical actors, they were very alive, very relevant, and in some very re real way, they were the context. So there's an, also an argument in here about uh, the way in which history and historiography does and does not deal with temporality. So mm -hmm. throughout they were acting as if those pasts were present and they were acting as if a world organized around uh, their desires, uh, this federal intercontinental cosmopolitan world order was almost at hand. When I also suggest at the same time, there were so many forces arrayed against this possibility being realized. So I kept thinking, well, what are they up to? And, and what are they up to pursuing something that seems impossible to us and in some ways seemed impossible to them and their contemporaries in other ways uh, they kept insisting was quite possible and was right here. And I argue that they were reading the historical moment in an imminent way, looking for new possibilities within the world that empire had created in a distorted and deformed way, but that perhaps they were also speaking to their heirs, to future generations, in the same way that M.A. Césaire, for example, said that Toussaint Louverture was speaking to the future and he heard him. Mm -hmm. Early on, Gary, you, you point out that the first book that you wrote pushed readers to rethink France and that this book is about unthinking France. And mm. I'm quoting you here, tur turning the very category of France inside out. So what does this mean? And in particular, what does this mean in the work of, of Césaire and, and Senghor? Um, throughout, I was interested in the ways, uh, you know, I, I, I quote this line from Adorno who talks about exploding an object by taking it more, more literally than it does itself. Mm. And this seemed to me a, a very powerful way of thinking about these thinkers and political actors' relationship to France. Their understanding was that the history of France and the history of uh, Martinique and Senegal and the French colonies were entangled and entwined with each other, that a new kind of socio-political and cultural world and reality was created through that. And in some sense, the wealth and resources 
uh, of modern France uh, were made, produced in part through colonial labor and colonial resources, and that uh, intellectually, politically, socially, historically, they uh, belonged properly to France and France belonged properly to them. But that did not mean that they were interested in uh, acting French culturally and being accepted as as French as French people. They basically their position was uh, you you meaning the French state and French society need to accommodate yourself to the entangled, interdependent, and you know essentially hybrid, fundamentally hybrid world that empire has created. And to accommodate yourself to that means that France itself would have to change in fundamental ways. And as I suggest here, in some ways, uh, their attempt to be true to a French Republican idea led them to reimagine France as Mm. a decentralized federation where continental France would be one component of a much larger political formation that included the former colonies as freely associated member states in a completely different kind of political formation where what had been the metropole, uh, as Senghor once said, would no longer be the federator, but would now be the federated. You, you make the point, Gary, that you know, while you're examining this notion of unthinking France that is in the work of these, these two figures, um, that we need to think about these figures not just as, as black thinkers, um, but that we need to, uh, and I'm quoting here again, unthink uh, supposedly European parameters of modern thought. And you talk about this project of not provincializing Europe, but deprovincializing Africa and the Antilles. So can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. And, you know, part of the book is an argument about the post-war period decolonization, the problem of freedom and challenges around colonial emancipation and self-determination. But part of the book is also an intervention into uh, scholarship about these two figures, an intervention into modern intellectual history, and an intervention into post-colonial studies. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that in many ways, uh, neither modern intellectual history nor post-colonial studies has done an adequate job of grasping the intellectual specificity of these characters. And in some ways, both of those fields I argue have a set of territorialist assumptions that make that, 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 that posit implicitly a kind of relationship between where people are from, uh, what they think and what they are most concerned with. Mm. So they are certainly Senghor and Cesare are certainly black thinkers. They're situated thinkers. They are concerned with African social realities and Antillean social realities, but that does not exhaust their sphere of concern. Mm -hmm. I also argue that they were global thinkers. And by global thinkers, I mean that they were part of a a global intellectual conversation that included metropolitan and colonial actors between the 1930s and the 1960s, uh, political thinkers, philosophers, uh, artists, poets, writers. uh, And I also suggest that they when I say they're global thinkers, I'm also suggesting that they were concerned with uh, seemingly uh, European abstractions like humanity, universality, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, the future of the world. They regarded the subtitle of my book comes from the fact that I discovered that they regarded decolonization as uh, providing an opportunity and a responsibility not only to improve African and Caribbean people's uh, living conditions or place in a post-war order, but to rethink and remake the world order itself. And it seems to me that on the one hand, uh, modern intellectual history has been quite uh, Eurocentric and hasn't really uh, considered thinkers like Senghor or Césaire or Du Bois or James as absolutely central to 20th century political, social, and social thought and critical theory. And on the other hand, uh, post-colonial theory, as important as the provincializing Europe move has been, which is to recognize the rooted, particular, culturally uh, restricted worlds from which 
purportedly universal categories like universality or humanity came from, uh, uh, because of that, often non-European thinkers who speak in those terms are understood to be acting out of some kind of uh, false consciousness, or they may be seen to be borrowing European terms or trying to rework European terms. And uh, in some ways, their authenticity, their politics may be questioned. And it struck me that not only Senghor and Césaire, but most of the thinkers in the Black Atlantic critical and radical tradition uh, placed humanism, for example, which in the 1990s we learned uh, to distrust for good reasons, placed humanism at the very central of their political and intellectual preoccupations. And I just wanted to start from the place, from a place that did not uh, regard that as a problem. They didn't regard it as a problem. So I wanted to think with them mm-hmm. uh, about what they meant by these kinds of things. I just want to follow up on, on what you just said there about thinking with and, and then this other, I mean, there are a number of ways of reading and, and, and thinking about these figures and, and ideas that, that you deal with in the book. But you have these two uh, things in particular, thinking with and working through. And I just wanted to ask you to say a little bit more about how those things are working for you as a, as a writer. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, in retrospect, I realize I have probably over-argued the case uh, for Senghor and Césaire as thinkers of this uh, over-argued my interest and enthusiasm about the Federalist project uh, that they developed. But in part, I wanted to uh, be a generous reader, mm. to read their texts closely, and to try, uh, like an anthropologist or a historian, to look with them through their work, through, in some sense, their eyes at the world in 1945. Mm-hmm. Instead of using our metrics about what is radical and what is not, what is, what is revolutionary and what is not, what is emancipatory and what is not, and then wonder why their writings and acts don't correspond to what we think we know about freedom now, to take them seriously as uh, embodied thinkers who lived and reflected critically uh, and abstractly on the set of predicaments that they confronted uh, so that's what I mean by thinking with them. Look, why, how is it that in 1945, given who they were and given what the world looked like, their vision of a non-national form of decolonization was perfectly intelligible? What, were, what was the kind of political and intellectual specificity of what they were up to and why? So in some sense, it is a close reading uh, and nothing more than that. In another sense, I also take the logic of their argument possibly further than they themselves take it. So I want to look at the limitations and the contradictions of some of what they were saying and some of what they were thinking, but almost, you know, if nothing else, because it hadn't been quite done before, in my view, I wanted to uh, really think along with them about uh, what the world might look like if, if we took seriously their their seemingly strange and non-self-evident ideas as a way both to understand them better, to understand that moment better, and possibly and hopefully to understand our moment better when Mm -hmm. questions about post-national democracy uh, and uh, supranational forms of, of justice are back on the table again. You offer the book, Gary, as, as intellectual history and, and also as critical theory. Could you say a little bit about why you want to make that point that this is also uh, critical theory? I, I, I was struck. Uh, I presented something earlier, uh, some piece of this a few years ago, um, and a very bright intellectual historian in the room whose work I respect was really struck by what he called the various normative claims I was making in the book. And I was struck by his being struck. I didn't <laughs> understand how one could not do that. So in part, I come at all this work through critical theory. I mean, it sounds kind of pretentious and, and uh, I don't, you know, uh, I'm not a political philosopher. I'm not a political theorist, but I come to these kinds of historical questions through uh, and historical materials and examples through a set of uh, theoretical concerns and through my own understanding of critical theory. And for me, one can only 
uh, theorize the world through uh, worldly examples. I'm not interested in abstract propositions about ultimate truths or ahistorical models. So mm-hmm. for me, historical thinking and theoretical thinking uh, always go together in the service of, uh, you know, urgent political questions. I realized I should frame it as intellectual history in order to make this intervention that I was talking about before in terms of, you know, people are now talking about global intellectual history and thinking in, about intellectual history in a wider frame. And in many ways, my methodology by reading their texts very closely uh, lines up with that of intellectual history. But um, I don't want to, uh, there are a lot of different kinds of intellectual history. Um, and I realized that, but I was not only interested in contextualizing for the, them for their own sake. I was not only interested in uh, having a deeper understanding of these intellectuals as intellectuals, but through them thinking about post-war political history and through them thinking about a bigger set of conceptual problems about uh, the given and the possible, about success and failure in politics, about self-determination, uh, about the relationship between the past and the present, and specifically about the relationship between that past and our political present. In your reading of uh, Cesar and Senghor, you're interested in their politics, but you're also, and you point this out throughout the book, you're also interested in thinking about their politics in relationship to their poetics. And mm. I just wanted to ask you to say something about that project in the book and how that's working. Yeah, uh- I absolutely regard them as uh, informing each other. For a long time, uh, scholarship on each of these figures has often divided between those who focus on their politics and those who focus on their poetry. And uh, those who, and a lot of critics and scholars who are interested as in these guys as anti-colonial actors and thinkers were often perplexed uh, regarding M.A. Césaire, for example, uh, Scholars typically wondered how the author of Notebook uh, of a Return to My Native Land, this radical, incendiary, anti-colonial tract, could also have possibly been this reformist and moderate politician who allowed departmentalization mm-hmm. uh, to, to take place. Uh, so I not only wanted to bring them together because it's important to... Uh, because that work informed each other, but it also seemed to me that we could only really understand the peculiar politics of their plan for a federalist post-colonial future where France would become more than what it had ever been and where they could see possibilities in given objects that it, that, dwelled below the world of appearances and that might evolve into something else altogether. If we understand their understood their theory of poetry and their theory of aesthetics and actually paid close attention to their poetry and very similar uh, strategies of thinking about the relationship between uh, a distorted present and an emancipatory future where work in their speeches to the National Assembly, in their political platforms and reports to party congresses, in their theories of images and objects, objects, and in their uh, theater and poetry. So it seemed to me that uh, a typical political historical um, approach might be to say, well, here was their poetry and it was linked to this political project. Here was what they said publicly about what they wanted politically. And now let's go behind the scenes into the archival boxes to see what uh, they were really up to and what this really meant. Uh, And there's a kind of epistemology that says that the further we get from the aesthetic and the further we get from the public and the published, the closer we get to getting at what really happened and truths. And uh, it seemed to me that the way to really grasp, not the only way to grasp, but one could not adequately understand their post-war political 
projects, their legislative interventions without looking closely at what they were doing in their poetry, which was also uh, um, about time as well. So a lot of my hints about their understanding of temporality and freedom Mm. came to me through looking at their poetry where they were staging very similar problems and wrestling in very similar ways. For example, with the coexistence of multiple uh, epochs. You do, Gary, in the book, treat these two figures separately. I mean, you have chapters devoted to each one of Mm -hmm. them, but, you know, in the book, and even in our conversation thus far, you know, we're talking about them together um, as, you know, maybe focusing a bit on their common ground in terms of some of these Mm -hmm. bigger ideas about freedom and time. And I'm just wondering what separates them. There are a whole number of divergences. Um, Both of them, I argue in the end, failed in some sense or uh, did not ultimately link their con- their ambitious and visionary constitutional projects to uh, vital social movements. And in that sense, they were very similar ultimately, although I resist this idea that somehow what they did between 45 and 60 was a failure. You know, there's a past possibility there that my book mm-hmm. tries to, to uncover. That said... I think Senghor was much more optimistic about the prospect of constitutional change uh, generating societal transformation, whereas Césaire was very attentive to the dialectic of direct action or mass social movement and uh, constitutional change Mm. and the dialectic between uh, the masses and cultural and political leaders. He constantly wrote about that. He constantly reflected on that. He reminded his colleagues in the National Assembly of this. And yet he too never, he too spent his life as the leader of a kind of, of a political party engaged in electoral politics. But I think their respective understandings of politics were different in that sense. Sangor was much more interested, uh, Senghor's thought was much more inflected by Catholicism and religion. Césaire's was not. Senghor was uh, much more interested and skilled at producing aesthetic theory. And Césaire was much more skilled at producing magnificent poetry. They were both poets. So they were important differences in how they, uh, in how they operated. I could say more about differences. Part of why Uh, they come together for me is that, again, in the scholarship, for a long time, there has been a tendency to elevate Césaire as the real radical and denigrate Senghor Mm -hmm. as the moderate or conservative of the two. And there are historical reasons why, why those formulations came into being, but they've become encrusted as really uh, unhelpful, superficial stereotypes that make me wonder what's at stake in this insistence that one is good and one is bad and one was radical and one was not. And one wrote good poetry, one wrote bad poetry. <laughs> right. And it struck me that uh, important to say, look, Césaire was much closer to Senghor's position with regard to cooperative federalism, for example, than we like to remember. And perhaps Senghor was much, uh, was, you know, as much a visionary uh, and a transformative thinker as Césaire was. So let's look at this moment where their political projects intersected in direct ways. Now, no doubt the history of uh, Senegal and the history of Martinique, the history of the West African colonies and the history of the Antillean uh, departments are very different. So, you know, the specifics of their interventions were we're very different. One of the things that I, I found most fascinating about the book is the way that you not only you know interrogate these you interrogate this notion of what it means, what freedom means, but also what it means to be radical, and you know whether it's in your discussion of Césaire's departmentalization or Senghor's idea of you know forgiving imperial France. Mm. That not only um, are you talking about other elements and that are ideas, but you're also suggesting that we rethink how. Uh, what those things meant 
and how unradical they were that we that we revisit those things as not necessarily the um, complicit mm. forms uh, or strategies that they may have been characterized as uh, previously. Could you say a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, I think we all have a tendency to uh, look at the past through the categories we've inherited. And with regard to decolonization and colonial emancipation, it seems especially striking to me that so many of us, uh, and I include my earlier self before (laughs) I wrote this book uh, within this, so many of us uh, tend to look back at that period of decolonization through the divisions, the taxonomies, the categories, and the metrics that the process of decolonization in many ways produced. So that which needs to be historicized and called into question is often uncritically used as the lens to regard that earlier moment. So that moment in 1945 was one in which a whole range of solutions to the problem of colonial emancipation were put on the table by colonial intellectuals and anti-colonial actors. That included various nationalisms and various internationalisms. And uh, I am not, this is not a book uh, for federalism and against nationalism, but it is an argument to say, let's start where they started. And where they started was with the problem of freedom. Colonialism needs to end. Colonialism is going to be abolished. What is it that we want? We tend to say, well, the end of colonialism means national independence. So of course they wanted that. And let's now uh, evaluate who helped or hindered that process of leading to national independence. Now, I'm not suggesting that national independence is a bad thing or was a wrong thing for the FLN, for example, for the Viet Minh in Indochina, for example. But uh, I want to start where they started, which was to say, well, let's look at what we want. What we want is self-management, self-government to be in control of our own lives. We also want substantive freedom, uh, which meant social uh, and economic uh, viability. Uh, this was a moment of uh, democratic socialism and social democracy, where welfareism was becoming a worldwide uh, possibility. And they were also looking at geopolitics. How do we not want to be bothered by uh, new imperial powers like the U.S. specifically, or mm-hmm. something like the new? new forms of global capitalism at the same time. So given the conditions of the world at that moment, they said, uh, how can we create a political framework that might uh, allow us to pursue a disalienated life, a properly human life? How might we Uh, how might we best create conditions for what Marx called human emancipation? Political emancipation may or may not be central, right? Political emancipation in in the form of national independence may or may not be central to that project of human emancipation. So, Uh, the guys I'm studying concluded that in this world at this moment to get most of what we would gather under the rubric of human freedom we think a future partnership with a post-French France, a reconfigured France that has been incorporated into our federal framework uh, is the best way to do that. So from a nationalist, a methodological nationalist perspective, that seems counterintuitive. Why would you imagine a future with uh, the former colonial power. From their perspective, they were saying, looking at the world now, looking at the interdependencies that imperialism itself has created, we think that delinking is not possible. We might get formal independence, but socially, economically, culturally, geopolitically, we will continue to be entangled and subject to the awesome power of the former colonizer, as well as other great powers. Given that delinking is not possible, given that entanglement and intimacy and proximity is inevitable, uh, and given the kind of interdependent world 
life world in many ways, that worlds that empire itself created, how do we build on, how do, how do we create an emancipatory political form that would correspond to what we want as free humans and that would, uh, that would address the world as it is now? So from that perspective, some of what we now regard as a problem, they uh, regarded as uh, self-evident and necessary. I know that, you know, this issue of failure and success is, I mean, it's problematic to frame our reading or understanding of these figures in those terms. But but let's talk about that for a minute, because, you know, in, ter- in terms of what you've just said, I mean, they were right, <laughs> right? Mm. That their reading of what was coming, some of their fears and anxieties about uh, the impossibility of, of disentangling mm. of the, the mistake that it might be to, to lay everything, to lay all the hopes on territorial sovereignty or uh, national independence, that these things wouldn't, in fact, bring about freedom or liberation. Yeah, that they were right. Uh, <laughs> is, that a ta- is that the takeaway? <laughs> well, they, they weren't wrong. That's part of it. Mm. I mean, their diagnosis of the problem was right. I don't want to suggest that their specific constitutional uh, program, which in many ways, as I argue, is utopian mm-hmm. and poetic and underspecified and anticipatory, would necessarily have been realizable or mm-hmm. better. It surely would have created another whole host of problems. But we certainly don't have grounds for for peremptorily deciding that they were wrong mm-hmm. or silly or stupid or mm-hmm. conservative, all of which uh, developed. I guess, you know, I'm interested in how uh, people as different as Senghor and Fanon, who are rightly understood as antagonists, intellectual and intellectually incommensurate in some ways, were both looking at the horizon of the coming post-war order and saying like this, we have a whole set of problems coming down on us. And they came to different conclusions about how to address that. But their analysis of uh, of the problem of neocolonialism uh, that was coming were remarkably similar. So I think, uh, you know, they weren't wrong. I'm less interested in uh, suggesting that the world, the world would have been reconciled in the ways they hoped uh, if their project was implemented to the letter, nor am I that interested in saying their solutions could be our solutions now. But I am extremely interested in their reading of the post-war moment when they regarded a whole different world order as not only possible but necessary. And in that sense, I think they were right in the sense that a a global order organized around territorial sovereignty could never deliver post-colonial justice. Mm -hmm. I think they were right when they said a decolonization, a form of decolonization that, that did not seek to transform metropolitan social relations could never succeed, right? Uh, revolution mm-hmm. in one country is not possible in, in a sense. In that sense, I think they were absolutely right. And I'm also very interested in their orientation to politics, how they're grappling with this set of dilemmas teaches us something about how to think about the problem of freedom. I talk through the book about how uh, they had a pre- or Césaire specifically had a pragmatic relationship to politics. And by pragmatic, I don't mean the New York Times idea of abandoning <laughs> principles and going for a compromise and getting what you can get. But an idea that there are not there do not exist a priori transhistorical solutions to political problems that one can has to have an experimental relationship to politics where you try stuff in relation to the given order and move on when and if that you know stick with something as long as it works and move on if it doesn't work and also to try things that may cut across what you are supposed to want or what the orthodoxy the political orthodoxies uh, of your allies even tell you you should want, whether they're anti-colonial nationalists or communists, to say, well, it seems to me that at this moment, a kind of unprecedented partnership with those who had been the source of hundreds of years of misery may be the only way to go, right? So in mm-hmm. that sense, I think, so 
I mean, I don't want to deflect your question if they were right, because there were all kinds of ways in which they were right. But I don't, the whole realism thing means that I don't want to get into this political science type debate of were they right or wrong? Couldn't have worked or not worked. But I do think that we have a lot to learn from them about how they negotiated this moment. And, you know, we can abstract from that to a whole vision of what post-colonial politics might look like. And I think it's especially juicy and delicious and fascinating because these guys have been dismissed Mm -hmm. by anti-colonial actors and thinkers and criticism for 60 years for being so silly or cowardly that they didn't uh, immediately insist on state sovereignty. I want to come back, Gary, to the, you know, the subtitle, this idea of the future of the world, because I mean, throughout the book, you're talking about the future of their world, but especially as you move into the last chapter of the book, but really throughout what's at stake is also, you know, the future of our world. Um, So I want to ask you about the lessons. This is a a work of history. It also very clearly has this mission to say something about our present world and its future. So so could you say a little bit more about that? Sure. It's not only the case that recent global transformations allow us, perhaps, as I'm suggesting, to see the post-war moment and these two figures' interventions in a new way, they become newly legible to us. Uh, That is true, and my book proceeds from that starting point, but it's not just a a scholastic exercise in getting that moment right or uh, Mm -hmm. rereading them and their world in a fuller and richer way, which it also is, But the book was written out of the sense that we now inhabit the runes or the unraveling of the very post-war order they warned against. They did not want, uh, they did not envision or did not believe that a post-war global order organized around territorial national states was the way to go. They did not believe that uh, national uh, autarky would be the best way to uh, really deliver social justice to formerly colonized peoples. And of course, that is exactly uh, the world we got. And I argue that that, the reasons for that were quite overdetermined. In many ways, they were right when they said, look, the infrastructure is already here for a totally different kind of federated political order Uh, that would reorganize global politics around these strange intercontinental partnerships. It's here. Why not? On the other hand, de Gaulle didn't want it. The British state didn't want it. So the former imperial powers didn't want it. The UN didn't want it. The US didn't want it. Mm -hmm. And the African trade unions didn't want it. The African nationalist movements didn't want it. So it was overdetermined that that wouldn't happen. In any case, uh, we got a world organized, the post-war order was organized around territorial national states. And uh, precisely that order is unraveling right now. And we are now asking a whole set of questions about post-national forms of democracy, mm-hmm. about, uh, to use Ballybar's words, citizenship without community, about uh, global forms of justice, about cosmopolitanism. And it seems that what we got in the post-war world was, on the one hand, territorial national states, and on the other hand, a kind of internationalism, a UN internationalism uh, that depended on the goodwill of member states, Mm. and whose overriding goal was order, not justice, right? To kind of keep the interstate system whole. Um, And now that that, through what we call have been calling globalization, uh, now that that interstate system is unraveling, and now that uh, uh, apocalyptic scenarios, uh, whether regarding civilizational wars or uh, you know climate change and climate disaster, mm-hmm. are bringing the question of post-national politics and justice into view, or questions about when we think about uh, when we think about the recent war, Israel's war in Gaza, and the fact that everyone knows that all of this contravened every aspect of international law and that it wouldn't matter for Israel, 
in the question of how to uh, stand in long distance solidarity, uh, how to link it, it. Let me step back for a moment. It seems to me that one of the most crucial political questions of this moment is how to link self-management, like real popular sovereignty, not territorial sovereignty, but self-management, autonomy to translocal solidarity or human solidarity mm. is on the table. And it really strikes me that whether you read international lawyers, political theorists, uh, even people like Parton Negri, if we look at some of the autonomous movements, uh, the, the autonomous anti-austerity movements uh, from Greece and Spain to Occupy, um, or even if we look at indigenous rights movements in Latin America, there are all kinds of attempts to reconstellate rights with states in non-territorial ways. There are all kinds of ways to think about legal pluralism or plural democracy. There are all kinds of attempts to disaggregate, disaggregate and reassemble sovereignty in different kinds of ways, or to think democracy without sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And it struck me that these guys were uh, using a lot of the very same language. So let me end this long rambling answer uh, <laughs> with something concrete. If we think about and again, I don't want to say like, if only we listened to these poets, the world <laughs> would have been saved. I absolutely don't think that's true. But it also strikes me that when Senghor said something like uh, the European Union, the European economic community, sure, you need West African votes to be part of that. And we agree with that. As long as we understand, of course, it's what you've been saying all along, that when we talk about Europe, we mean Africa, right? Mm -hmm. So he was imagining a European Union where West African states, who would not be states, would be uh, charter members of that type of confederation. Mm -hmm. So we can think about the current uh, Mediterranean refugee crisis, for example, uh, in relation to that prospect and that possibility. Mm -hmm. They started with the idea that we refused to come to France the day after political independence as foreigners asking for aid. Mm -hmm. It's not only that this metropolitan European wealth belongs to us in some way, but this is our state. This is our justice. We want to be self-managing. We don't want to assimilate. We don't want to migrate. We want to be self-managing, but we also want to envision a political, a, a political framework within which we can hold you accountable for the inequalities that your practices are producing. So uh, it was precisely this kind of uh, uh, refugee, it, it was precisely against uh, the looming prospect of fortress Europe that people like Senghor and Césaire were uh, trying to think their way out of in ways that didn't have a precedent. We want to, we, we, they, they said, look, we're down with cosmopolitanism, but not as an ethos and not just as a kind of fancy description of certain uh, places where cultures and peoples are heterogeneous. What would a cosmopolitan political form look like mm. that was legally plural, that had different administrative and legal orders and self-managing communities within it, but with one single political decentralized framework? For them, it was, uh, it was a federalist framework. So th that, you know... In that sense, I think, uh, you know, it's pretty vague in general, but uh, if, if, if you think with me from there, it seems that what they were putting on the table uh, is quite timely. There are so many other questions <laughs> I want to ask you, but I'm going to hold myself to just one, which is what are you working on now, Gary? Um, I'm working on two things now. One is a set of essays on the relationship between history and time that polemically starts from the question of why history, the field that should be most interested in the problem of time, has actually bracketed temporality and time as an object of study and as a kind of uh, methodological challenge. So though, in some ways, those essays will try to um, put into words and be more explicit about a lot of the sensibility uh, and, and methodology that was guiding this last book. And 
Uh, another project has to do with international law and justice. So I'm a very uh, literal historian who is slowly working his way to the present. So this will be on <laughs> post-colonial uh, justice, global justice in the 60s and 70s. That looks at Bob Denard and uh, mercenar- his mercenaries. That looks at uh, Lumumba, uh, Patrice Lumumba and that drama and possibly uh, the reparations uh, debate developing in the Caribbean. And in some ways, these three books will, uh, I realize, stand together, hopefully, going from the 30s until uh, the present. Well, I look forward to hearing more about these projects as they develop. I just want to thank you so much, Gary, for joining me and for writing the book. Thank you. It's a great format, and I really enjoyed it. 